God's love to broken people is amazing. And also, it does not matter to him if others have broken us, or as is the case for many of us, we have broken ourselves. What he is looking for is people who have been humbled, humbled enough to be honest with him about our condition. Now, the the story we heard, the account of how Jesus saw a sinful woman at a well outside a Samaritan city illustrates everything that I said in that opening paragraph and more. So without wasting any more time in the introduction, let's look at the gospel account of the living water and the savior of the world, even pagan outcasts. So, the portions of God, uh, John's gospel that we heard break into two halves. In the first half, we find out that a planned stop in Sikar, Jesus encounters a woman at a well and commands her to give him a drink. And in the ensuing exchanges, he offers her living water and eternal life. As an introduction, Jesus makes a planned visit to a city in Samaria, meets a woman at a well, and then he asks her to give him a drink, and she questions him. Okay, We'll take it sentence by sentence. It was being necessary he go through Samaria. And I think the key thing here is the tense of the verb of being here means this wasn't something that was a snap decision on the spur of the moment. John accounts for this using language that this was a long-standing plan of Jesus, perhaps even from before the creation of the world. Now he's coming to a city called Sikar. Near the ground, Jacob gave his son Joseph. Now, the name Sikar means drunkard, which is kind of interesting. Now, Samaria included many of the northern tribes, and the biggest one contained in it was Ephraim, who was one of Joseph's two sons. And if you read Isaiah 28, you will see that Isaiah called out in the name of the Lord Ephraim as a bunch of drunkards. So this may have been a long-standing 700-year name. And then John continues and tells us Jacob's well was being there. Jesus had grown weary in his journey and was sitting there at noon. Now, there is no other record in all of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, about this particular well. This is the only time. And Jesus is very human, and we're told that he had become weary as the sun had reached its peak position in the sky. And then 
we're told a woman from Samaria is coming to draw water. And Jesus commands her to give him a drink. And then John adds a parenthesis. Oh, yeah, by the way, his disciples had gone into the city to acquire food, to get some food. So, and this is important, that a woman would come in the heat of the day to draw water. When all of the women would get up before it was too hot, the sun had just risen, they would bring water for the day, and then in the cool of the day, at the evening, they would get water to last them overnight. So what does this indicate? She was despised by all the other women in the city. And I'll just say, forever, any of you who have seen The Chosen, this is exactly how they depict this story. And then Jesus commanded her to give him a drink of water because he's alone. And then she is saying to him, how thou, a Jew, from me are asking to drink a Samaritan woman being. So, she questions his command. Jews and Samaritans hated each other, and the New English Bible was very gentle in the way they put it. And also, women were under their husbands. Now, God put guidelines on marriage, but women were still under men. So with this question, Jesus responds and tells her she's ignorant of God and him, or she would have asked him for living water, and this prompts two more questions out of her. And he responds with an invitation to eternal life. So let's go back to John again. Jesus answered her, if... Thou had known the gift of God, and who is being the one commanding thee? Thou would have asked, and he would have given to thee living water. Now, he says, if you knew, well, just understand if you've read all the other Gospels, even many, many Jews did not know that Jesus is God's gift to people, to them, and to everybody. So how could she know? being a Samaritan. Now, I found a very important thing that I never knew before this week. The word living here is a verb. It's an active participle, which is always used to describe the essence of who a person is. So by the very use of language, John is telling us that Jesus is eternally living, eternally in the present tense, eternally alive. He is revealing to her in response to her question that ongoing life is in him, his very person, forever present life. Jesus reveals himself in response to questions. This was her first question. Going on, the woman is saying to him, sir. That's the word kurios for Lord. She doesn't understand how true that is yet, but she uses it three times. Sir, bucket thou art not having, and the well is deep. Then where thou having the living water? Not thou being greater than our father Jacob, 
who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his children and his cattle. So now she questions him twice about his very ability to give her living water. First, he has no physical means to draw water. And she says, are you really greater than the father, the patriarch of all 12 tribes? Jesus answered, each one drinking from this water will thirst again. But whoever may drink of the water, I will give. Not ever will thirst to eternity. That's how strong of a promise this is. But the water I will give to him will be springing up to life eternal. So he begins with a very simple fact. He says that water from a well, it's temporary. It's only a temporary remedy or relief from thirst. But he says the water that he gives will assuredly quench thirst until eternity. They will be satisfied. And then he goes on to say his living water will spring up, well up, to eternal life. So in response to her two challenging questions, Jesus reveals himself as the giver of unquenchable eternal life. In him, life will not be extinguished or put out. Jesus reveals himself in response to questions. And then she is saying, Sir, thou must give me this water that I may not thirst, nor be coming here to draw. And she shows she still doesn't get it yet. She's thinking of everything on a physical level. She's got a misunderstanding. And the rest of this opening passage, Jesus speaks of her husband. She confesses her unfaithfulness. He tells of salvation and worship. And then he reveals himself as Messiah. And then she testifies to the citizens who come to faith in him. And then we'll close with a look at the psalm, which says that God will guide us, and we just have to ask him. So first, Jesus commands her about her husband. She confesses unfaithfulness. He commends her honesty. And then explicitly tells the story of her life. In realizing he's a prophet, she asks about worship, and he tells her of salvation. So in response uh, to her erring answer, Jesus says, now thou must be going, thou must call thy husband to thee, and thou must come here. So Jesus commands her to go and speak to her husband and bring him to himself. But she answers, not I am having a husband. And then Jesus says, I love this, well thou have said, husband not I am having, because five husbands thou have had, and thou art having now, he thou art having now, not 
being thy husband. This true thou have spoken. So first and last, Jesus uh, commends her and declares that she has spoken an uncomfortable truth. That's what I meant in the introduction. How many of us can be so honest with God to confess things that we would rather not think about? And he also knows her story. He gives an exact, precise history of her having had five husbands. And then he tells her that the man she is now living with will not even commit to take her for a wife, to make her his wife. He's just happy to be with her. And she is saying again, sir, I am seeing that prophet thou art being. And our fathers in this mountain worshipped, but you all are saying that in Jerusalem is the place where it's being proper to worship. So this is the grace of faith given to her. Jesus is indeed the prophet Moses foretold way back in Deuteronomy. And then you must understand about the Samaritans. They worship God only according to the Torah. When they broke away two generations after David, all of scripture was just the Torah. And then in the days of David and Solomon and all the way up to the exile and the return, God gave to the Jews what Jesus described as the prophets and the Psalms. Remember when Jesus was resurrected and he was on that road, he spoke to them everything about him in the Torah, in the uh, prophets, and in the Psalms. So there were three parts to the Jewish Bible, and the Samaritans only had one. So they didn't have kings, they didn't have chronicles, which tells how God chose Solomon to build his temple in Jerusalem. That's what she's really saying here. But then Jesus says, thou must believe me. Hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You yourselves worship whom thou have not known. So, What's going to happen is when Jesus completes his first mission on earth, and this is only early in the mission, the first year, all worship of God will be changed. And the place of worship will change. In fact, the place will not be of the highest importance. Jesus continues, we are worshiping whom we have known for salvation of the Jews is being. Now the covenant God of Jacob Israel, the father of Judah, he is the one who will save the world. In the whole book of Isaiah, which many have called the fifth gospel, tells us not just about the salvation of the Jews, but the salvation of all nations. And I'll just give you three highlights now. In chapter 25, Jesus will destroy death for all people. 
prayer will now be universal. Everybody can talk to God and call on him. And in the last chapter, which echoes the end of the book of Revelation, his glory will be universally proclaimed by a remnant from all of the nations. And now, concluding the first part of chapter 4, Jesus tells her about new worship, greater than Samaritans or Jews. And then he says it will be in spirit and truth. And then he reveals himself as Messiah. And I like how the New English Bible put it. It's the only one I've seen that got it absolutely right. So Jesus continues, but our is coming and now is being when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For also the Father such is seeking those worshiping him. So Jesus said this hour, which he had just said was future a few minutes ago, is now here. It will be a new way to worship the Father. And he says spirit and truth. It's not going to be in the location or ritual. Okay, he emphasizes the spiritual aspect of it. And then he says, spirit the God and those worshiping him in spirit and truth. It is necessary to worship. Now, just as the gospel of John begins in verse one by saying, word the truth, that particular construction means that the spirit is God, but not all of God. And the word is God, but not all of God. That's truly what the Greek means. Don't listen to the cults that tell you otherwise. And these two put together are an ironclad human argument for the Trinity. God is spirit, God is word, and God is father. Now, of course, he's also truth. And it is very necessary for those who are in God's image to be worshiping God in spirit and truth. So she's saying to him, the woman, I've known that Messiah is coming, which is being called Christ or anointed. When that one may come, he will proclaim to us all things. What's happening here is I think this discussion about true worship is much more than she can handle. She has shown some knowledge of Messiah and some faith in him. And she thinks the conversation's not over. Yeah. Jesus is saying to her, I am. Who is speaking to thee? The one who is speaking to thee. Jesus now brings the conversation to a startling close, applying the divine name I am to himself. He is Messiah. So with this, he declares himself to be the answer to all her questions and the questions of all people of all time forever. Jesus reveals himself in response to questions. And now we must look at, I'm calling it a coda. I know a little bit about music. And usually we sing some choruses here too, CCLI, where it says, uh, go back to the beginning and then jump to the coda. So after the verse, 
verses in this, the, the choruses have been sung a few times. Sometimes in music there will be a short ending, which it flows from the beginning, but it is just different and unique enough to be its own separate piece. And so now we will be looking at verses 39 to 42 because this is what it's all about. This is the ending. She testifies of Jesus to those in Sakar, and they believe in him. They come to him. They hear him. They request him to stay having known him as the savior of the world. So let's look at these verses. But many Samaritan citizens believed in him through the word of the woman, testifying that he told me all I did. So her encounter with Messiah Jesus resulted in her being changed. And she had to tell everyone about him. And here's our application. Those of us who have been changed by Jesus, we need to follow her example. Like Paul said, we can't have been worse sinners than she was, maybe close. But she told what he had done for her. And then therefore we're told when the Samaritans came to him, they were requesting him to stay with them And he stayed two days. Here again is a general truth applying to us as much as those Samaritans. All who come to Jesus in humble faith, they begin to know him by his self-revelation. And they have a great desire for his presence. The more we know him, the more we want him. And he graciously, graciously stayed with them two more days. And then there's this brief, powerful sentence. Many more believe because of his word. So they had heard a testimony, but they spend two days hearing Jesus. The gospel word of Jesus, the very words that Jesus himself spoke, this is what saves people. And Paul wrote about that to both the Romans and the Corinthians. And then we will finish up John's account. They were saying to the women, no more because of what thou spoke, We are believing for indeed we have heard and we have known that this is being truly the savior of the world. And here is something that I think is very important and we need to hear it in our individualistic world these days. Testimony and proclamation like the woman did. That's the beginning of salvation. But when a community of people encounters Jesus together over time, he becomes truly known to them. For anybody who would ask, why should I be a part of a church, not just on Sunday, but every day, this is the reason why. And then the bottom line for both the first century Samaritans and the bottom line for all who have experienced the revelation of Jesus is the assurance he is the savior of the world. And as I pray, if he's the savior of us, 
He's the savior of everybody, and we should want everybody to have what we have in Jesus. And now let's go back to uh, Psalm 43 and spend a little bit of time there. I'll summarize it that the psalmist is requesting fair judgment from God. And like the Samaritan woman, he's questioning, in this case, his oppression. But in faith, he requests that light and truth would guide him. So again, I'm going to do um, the Puritan Psalter. I'm going to give it to you just word for word into English. Thou must judge me, God, and thou must plead my cause from people not faithful. From man of deceit and iniquity, thou will deliver me. So here's a request and a bit of faith in a promise. So this son of Korah, because 42 and 43 are clearly one psalm. There's three stanzas, and they all have the same conclusion to each stanza. Okay. He requests God to judge him fairly and to plead for him to be delivered from the unfaithful. And then he expresses his faith, thou wilt deliver me in his deliverance from immoral people. Do we ever need that prayer and faith today? Continuing, he says, because thou art the God of my strength. Why have thou cast me off? Why mourning will I go in the oppression of the enemy? So just like, the Samaritan woman, but with some faith, starting with a declaration of God's strength, he now expresses doubt. And I think this is very similar to what happened to the father of the young man in Mark's gospel. Remember, he said to Jesus, I am believing, but thou must be helping my unbelief. And then the last line we'll consider. Thou must send thy light and thy truth. They will lead me. They will bring me to the mount of thy holiness and into thy dwelling places. So in faith, he's requesting God to send his light and truth to guide him. He believes that these will lead him to the place where God's holiness is dwelling. And let us now understand some 3,000 years after this psalm was written. It's fulfilled for all who are in Jesus who declared himself to be the light of the world sent by the Father. God does send his guiding light, and it's in Jesus. And this brings it all together, so let me just sum it up. Jesus chose to encounter an unfaithful Samaritan woman at a well to reveal himself to her. He answered her questions about him and revealed himself as the giver of living water and eternal life. Then he told her of a new way of worship to all who will come to God in spirit and truth. And when he reveals himself as the divine Messiah, I am, she testifies to him and many believe in him. Jesus reveals himself in questions. 